everybody, we're live with Nancy Allen on Game Changers. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Vicky. I love you. <laughs> I love you so much. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm, 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 I'm so You're very grateful. welcome. I'm so grateful. Um, this is going to make a noise now because I just opened it in a browser so we can see who's joining us. You know, you really saved my life, and you did it at the very, very last minute. Whoa! I have something flying around. Um, which normally I would not be able to get you at the last minute. This is one advantage. Well, and normally I would not be at home all the time. So I'm very available. This is what I'm saying. It's like there are advantages to the COVID craziness, right? Um, Definitely. <laughs> so for those of you who are watching at home and wondering what is going on, because originally drummer Liberty DeVito, who played with Billy Joel for 30 years, and his book just came out literally on the 17th and it's a number one Amazon bestseller in just days. He's in his second printing already. And um, he got a gig. Who, who gets a gig in the middle of COVID? A rock boy does, right? So, and then when I realized he, he didn't let me know until 3.30 yesterday. Now, Nancy, would you do that ever? Well, I would try not to. It would be my goal to not let something like that happen. But given a probably very big job in COVID, and he might have been sitting home for a while. So, you know, a guy's got to do what a guy's got to do. And he's got a family. He's, I totally get it. And yes, of course, uh, whenever we can make money in this time, we've got to do it. I get it. Um, and yeah, then a boyfriend, a boyfriend would not get a break, though. You know what I'm saying? We, you know, we, we talked about this yesterday. Are you, okay, so yesterday we were talking about, I was talking about my lifetime obsession with men and how I tend to spend half my life thinking about the guy and all. Do, are you one of those people? Were you one of those people? Uh, yes, I would say that I'm a serial marrier. And <laughs> uh, the subtitle would be looking for love in all the wrong places. Although you've you've, Story you've, of my life. you've upped, your, upped your game though. Yes, that's after 10 years of spending alone time with me and only me. I thought it was done, so. Okay, so let's talk about that. How many marriages? Three, okay, I'm, I'm on two, mm -hmm. I, I've done two, I've done two. You're, you're, we're, yeah, I, you're not freaking me out, so. There would have been more if I had time. With the, if the divorces had moved along a little, who knows? How long did <laughs> you know, I wanted to be with someone? I needed. I thought I needed that that other person to, you know, make me whole, to make me happy, to you know, family and all of that. And you know, uh, there's some truth to that. But there was so much healing to do before I could figure that out. So how did? Okay. So do you? Do you know where that came from with you? Because I know where mine came from. Do you know? Do you know why that was true for you? You know, I think that. Um, well, first of all, I'm a little cancer girl, so I like home and family and all of that. Right. But I think that the the there was a call. I was a child of chaos, so there's a lot of love and there's a lot of chaos in my home. So I think. I was in search of creating a safe home for myself. The problem was I kept replicating the problem that I dragged out of my home and picked that person over and over again. 
You know what and, I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Um, been there, done that. So the decision, did, did you, okay, so you were alone for 10 years in between your third marriage and Jay. For those, yeah. So, um, so for the, for those 10 years, you said that you did the work. What did that look like? What, what was that? How did you find yourself? How did you find sanity in there? Well, the, uh, the last was so bad and so um, disruptive to my being. Uh, it was really an assault. And I, uh, I thought, I don't have another one of these in me, you know, so this isn't what I do. So I'm going to be alone. So I, I knew I had a lot of healing to do a lot of grief, a lot of, um, cause I was letting go of the area of my life that I thought was the one area that was the one that was going to make my life whole. So, I mean, I went to Jungian therapy. I did hypnotherapy. I would have done an exorcism. <laughs> I mean, I was willing, but it was really not about figuring it out. It was about healing. Okay so, okay. so what is, what does that mean? Cause I'm, I'm there. What does that mean? What does that healing mean? What did it mean for well, you? I first had to find out why I picked mean mm. abusive men. That was mm. the first thing I had to discover. It's like uncover, discover, discard. Right. And, um, and then I really had to, I don't think I'd ever really taken a look at myself and said, what do I like? What do I like to do? What do I like to, how do I like to spend my life? All I had to be that partner in my own life for myself. So that, and how so, well, it was very odd at first. And then it became very natural. The more I practiced, it took years. I mean, obviously it took years. And then, I got to a point where I thought, well, and you get old enough and you get to the point where you think I'm not accepting any less than this. I'm not accepting anyone who would treat me less than the way I treat myself. Did and, you walk uh, away from things during those 10 years where you felt like yeah. you're, did you walk away from men in those years that you felt were maybe going to replicate that pattern? Well, for the first five years, I didn't even want to go on a date. And wow. um, then I would say in the last three years before I met Jay, I probably had three or four dates, one with a man that I knew from back in the day, from my acting days, who we always got along. We always had fun. I always liked him. I thought, hmm, maybe this is, and we went to dinner and I knew right away in the first, I thought, this ain't it. You know what I mean? It just wasn't it. And then uh, someone, uh, somehow I hooked up with this attorney and I don't know, it was very awkward. He lunged at me when and it was oh. just like, ah, please. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and so I thought, you know what, I'm fine, and I let it go. Really, let it go after that, and um, and I really accepted. I thought, gee, I guess that's going to be sad in a way because I couldn't imagine ever holding hands with someone again, or you know, uh, cuddling or going to the movies or just you know that companion. And um, yeah, I'm always in search of true love. I love true love. So were you, were you lonely in that time? Was it lonely? Did you long for it? Uh, no, I really, I, there were times when I felt lonely, but that's when I had to figure out what to do for myself. Whether it was making dates with my girlfriends or, you know, ordering a pizza and watching a movie, you know, just doing and giving myself those times. There were just those moments where I'd go, oh, I guess I'm not going to meet, you know, just that feeling that it might not happen. But I was okay with that because I couldn't take, I was, af I was afraid because each time I was like, Oh, this one's different. 
you know, reminded me, I don't know if you remember at Alfred Hitchcock's show that was an hour long show. Yeah. <laughs> it was a crazy show, uh-huh. that one where the, the husband and wife and the wife told the husband that she had been raped. So they're driving in the car and they're driving down the road and she says, that's him. And so they, the whole thing, the, the guy goes off the road, he murders the man, he said, there, now you're safe. They get back in the car and they're driving. She goes, that's him. Oh, my God. So I, I felt like I didn't want to do that yeah. again. And I know that no one was going to be, no one was going to fix it. No one was going to, I just, yeah. I wanted someone to have a good time and who was kind. I had to just define it. I wanted someone kind, affectionate, funny, intelligent, you know, cute <laughs> a little bit at this age you know what I mean yeah. and um, a man a grown-up so because I, I found those boy men you know the boy men that need someone to like grow them up it's exhausting <laughs> so you basically had a list a I did. you had a list I did anything on your list that Jay didn't or that he didn't have he came in with all your all your checked boxes he did. I, at first, I was a little skeptical because he lives in Hermosa Beach, and I thought, okay, this is just geographically not desirable. This is too hard. I can't do this. But you know what? For me, it was really good because wow. it kind of forced that that you couldn't just always oh, right down the street, so you're together like all the time, all the time. So it was really a, a nice, slowly developing relationship. Uh, and uh, anyway, so here we are sheltering for the last, what is it, four months, five months? Eight years. What is it? How many years? So, so you how long, you guys have been together for how long? It'll be five years in September. Wow, that's fantastic! And so, it's not repeating a pattern for you. This is different. Yes, this is different. And this is now, though, through COVID, one thing it's done for you is you are now cohabitating. Yeah. Which, yeah, yeah. it's really so, nice. It's really so, nice. It's we do really well together. We have a good time. You know, he does his thing. I do my thing. And then we have, you know, meals together. But he's he's writing them. He's deep, like deep in, for anyone who knows writers like you, writing. If I'll, I'll be sitting there and I look at him. And first I think, he doesn't love me. And then I look and I go, you're writing, aren't you? He goes, yeah. <laughs> it's just like in with his character. Sometimes I'm jealous of those characters. <laughs> Is he, is he, I know he wrote his memoir. We, we had him on and we talked about it. Is yeah. he another, is he's writing a script? Nice. It's romantic so, comedy. But it has a lot of depth Jay, Jay was a television writer, the Jeffersons and, and uh, just an incredible resume he has of, of so it, okay. So here's my other question. I don't know if you know the answer to this is COVID in his script, you know, because I'm wondering how are we going to have, stories moving forward that don't acknowledge the fact that we've gone through this. I mean, I think this were forever changed because of this. I don't know though. Well, I think we have to, I read, I forget what show one show said they were going into production. They're not going to notice it, but there's another show that I read. I don't remember what it was. It was today or yesterday that they're actually putting it together for a show and it's going to be all about COVID. Right. So, I mean, how can we ignore it? It's now all of our lives, I mean, the entire universe. You know, I, we're in a collective pause here. Just like Grey's Anatomy uh, is going to, of course, it's a, it's that's a, it. Right. It was Grey's Anatomy. They now, that's it. Yeah. 
So, okay, so let's talk about Nancy. So, okay, so you now are in a position where COVID, COVID is kind of working out okay for you in a way because you have this lovely domestic relationship. How is it impacting you as far as not being able to do your work? And we can talk about WeSpark and let's mm -hmm. talk about WeSpark. Um, yeah. Are you able to carry on in COVID? So here's the thing. Personally, I'm basically a homebody. So with yeah. or without Jay, this is like, oh, you know, I'm home. <laughs> it's kind of okay for me. Um, yeah. It's great having doing this together with him. But uh, as far as work with WeSpark, you know, we just moved into this absolutely breathtaking new center, 9,000 square feet. Everything is impeccably designed for every program that we have. Mm. And we opened and closed three weeks later. So um, essentially, we've gone online. So we have all of our support groups are on Zoom or telehealth and uh, guided imagery and uh, Qigong and yoga. And uh, we did a sound and healing sound bath the other night. So we're doing all this stuff online. And actually, the guests, our page, the patients, as people would know them, we call them guests, but um, are really enjoying it. And they're hoping that, that we keep it going uh, for, and, and you know what, that, that was really my goal a long time ago because there's so many people that either wrote to me from out of town or were homesick and they couldn't wow. figure out how to get these access to these programs. So we've done a major outreach across the country and let people know, hey, we're free. Come on. You're welcome to use wow. these programs. And um, so it's kind of exciting. The administrative part of it is a little bit challenging, but there's a great staff. We meet collectively as a group once a week, and then we do a little breakout sessions. But it's all like here, like we're sitting and talking. Is this what we do it in Zoom? Right. Um, it's it's easy to get distracted at home. Hard to stay for me focused. It's like hmm, squirrel, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So Nancy, if you could give the the few sentence de uh, description of WeSpark and what in, what motivated you to get involved? So WeSpark Cancer Support Center, the founder was an actress named Wendy Jo Sperber. Mm -hmm. We knew each other from the 70s. We made a couple of movies together. Mm -hmm. And uh, in her late 30s, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Single mom, she had two kids. It was really hard for her. She was really sick and there was nowhere in the San Fernando Valley for her to go for support and actually nowhere in Los Angeles for her wow. children to go for support outside of a, a therapist office. So her mom or dad or siblings, everybody was melting down. So Wendy said, okay, LA needs a place where everybody can go, who needs support, and it has to be free. And that's that. And everyone told her she couldn't do it. And that was not, no was not in her vocabulary. So she had a big fundraiser. The first one was a golf tournament. In fact, the big boys were the, they played. And wow. she asked to be a celebrity golfer, which I did. I had no really clue what she was doing or why she was doing it, but she was my dear friend. So anyway, when she found the place and opened it up and she said, listen, you're into all that woo-woo stuff. I need this here. I need you to come and help me. And, and you're going to be the creative program director. I'm thinking, what is she talking about? I had no. Have you done anything administrative like that before? No, but oh, what okay. I had done was uh -huh. a few years before, I was thinking that in 
my mind, I wanted to open a healing center just for women where we could learn to meditate and do yoga and have inspirational speakers and women, women, women and healing, you know, and right. I couldn't figure out how to raise money. So I got involved with Wendy and we started, we had two support groups, one cancer, one caregivers, a yoga class, which she made me teach because I knew how to do yoga. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, uh, and what else did we have? I think game night. I mean, like how long ago was this, Nancy? This was in 2001. Okay. So we're 19 years, and now we have, you know, when we're fully up and running, probably 45 programs a week. Oh my we have right now online nine support groups that are going. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. We did, unfortunately, lose Wendy in 2005, but I know somewhere in the environment because i hear that whisper in my ear from time to time or that poke come on you can do more get going <laughs> so it's a beautiful environment i love the people uh, i lost my father to cancer and of course i lost wendy to cancer most people's lives have been touched by cancer and it's just a really cool environment and it's creative and supportive and it's uh it's it's kind of it's it's really Kind of a mission now for me you know i love it cindy beagle says that a lot of people know wendy from bosom buddies that she was in bosom buddies with with tom hank and that's how some of these people may know her um when yes. uh, cindy, cindy worked with jay you know on on uh, yes. uh, -huh. yeah. uh so um i i i'm, I'm uh, if it looks like i'm not looking at you i'm occasionally i'm looking over to see like who's there and we'll, we'll talk to you we'll talk <laughs> everybody and we'll get your questions for Nancy. So if you have questions for Nancy, put them in the thread and we'll, we'll come over there in a little bit and we'll, we'll address them. Right now we're going to answer my questions. So, okay. So we've talked a little bit about COVID and the fact that you're a homebody and it's not terrible for you to be home. What uh, we talked a little bit about this when, when Jay was on a couple of weeks ago, but let's get your take on it. So what are you willing to do? What does your life look like? In, and it has it changed over the last four months what you guys are willing to do. Oh, of course it's changed dramatically. First of all, I'm just gonna tell you, I have the antibodies. I was very sick in January. Nobody knew what was wrong with me, but I was very sick I was, I woke up with a sore throat and I started coughing and coughing and a headache and my nose was running and I went to the doctor and she said, wait, wait, all in one day? Coughing? I woke up like that, yeah. Okay. I woke up with it and I went to my doctor, wonderful physician, and she said, it's a virus. There's nothing I can give you. Get some Robitussin, you know, rest, blah, blah, blah. Well, over the next three days, I started coughing uncontrollably. And so she gave me prednisone. I took that for four or five days, nothing, didn't do anything. Wow. Then, meanwhile, I'm on my third bottle of Robitussin. Then she gave me an antibiotic. I, then I was coughing and coughing. I could barely catch my breath. I was so tired. So I thought, I have pneumonia. I went to my pulmonologist. I went to him. He's a brilliant doctor at Cedars, one of the top guys. He said, did all the tests. He says, you don't have pneumonia, but I'm sorry. There's nothing I can give you. You have a virus. This is in January. So this went on. What did we know about? Did you know about COVID at this point? Did we know? No, it was just, people were just starting to. So end of January, beginning, people were just starting to talk about it. And people would say to me, oh, do you have the coronavirus? I said, oh, for God's sake, no, I don't have that. Don't be silly, you know. But so anyway, so that was 
by the end of February, um, uh, which my nephew, he's, I think he's watching, my nephew Eugene. Some people call him Gene, I call him Eugene. What's his he, last name? I saw Eugene. Eugene Allen. Oh, Eugene, anyway, okay, I'm looking for him, yeah. So, so anyway, he came to visit and he was worried about my cough and I said, I'm fine, I'm healing. Long story short, we go into the lockdown, which by the way, when we closed on March 18th, when I closed the office and I went to my car, I sobbed. I was sobbing and I was sobbing because my life is so structured. My routine is so structured. It was like I was literally panicked about what am I going to do? What am I going to do? <laughs> so, so I go into COVID. Jay comes up. We're together. And it was weird. And going, I, I didn't, I wasn't upset. I kept being, Are you better at this point? I'm better. Yeah, I'm better. This was uh, March. This was around March. No, yeah, March uh, 18th or 20th, something like yeah, that. Much better. Oh, we're COVID crazy. Did you have the stomach upset? No, I didn't have body aches. I didn't have fever. I didn't have, well, I had the coughing, the shortness of breath, headaching a little bit, runny nose. That that was basically you it. You had fatigue. Oh my god! I oh. mean, I was cough. I would cough for for minutes and minutes, and I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop, and then I finally just I could barely breathe, you know. And then I'd fall asleep, and then it would start all over. It was horrible, absolutely horrible. But I was convinced that I had I was undiagnosed with bronchitis or something, uh -huh. and then um, so anyway, in April. When, you know, Rochelle Carson, who's a mutual friend of ours, she calls me. She says, you know, my friend had COVID and they're doing this certain kind of testing. They're doing antibody testing at the Department of Health. You just have to sign up and you don't have you don't have to have COVID or so this long questionnaire. I fill it out. I go finger prick over on Tahunga, which and five days later, I find out I'm positive for the antibodies. Wow. So all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my God. Then they do the test. I was negative at that point for COVID. And then they were trying to see if I could uh, donate plasma, but I wasn't a candidate after they did all the testing for other reasons. But um, so it, 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 it's, I have to say, I wasn't worried about it the way people were panicked at first. I kept thinking, you know, it'll be okay. I didn't hit full, full on panic until I went to the market mm -hmm. and I couldn't get eggs. And I couldn't get my almond milk. I mean, everything was bare. And I'm like, I wasn't even thinking about toilet paper at that point. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I just, I came home and I sobbed. I thought, what's to become of us? You know, and then you try to Google and get Instacart or whatever that thing is. And they say, well, we can't get you this, but we'll get you that. And I'm like, oh, God. It was very frightening. Very frightening. And so you guys do shop for yourselves, don't you? Yes, I did try the Instagram or card or whatever that yeah. is. I like to pick out my own food, so I'm willing to go and do it. So how scary, I haven't been to a supermarket. I haven't, it's killing me. That's my favorite kind of shopping is food shopping. I love picking out my food. It kills me that somebody else is doing it. How, how do you feel when you're in the store? I feel much better now. Initially, it was very odd, uh, the first month, six weeks, 10 weeks, whatever it was. I don't even know how long it's been, but I remember going during senior hour and all the seniors are lined up. And I was, we were at Rouse and Vineland. And I remember they finally, everybody was marching in like little soldiers with their cart. 
And then it was like, do you remember supermarket sweepstakes? Everybody started running. I'm going to the paper house. It was insane. And the anxiety that it would produce. That's when I decided that no matter what, every day I was going to eat whatever I wanted, whatever sweet I wanted. And I found these wonderful, uh, I guess they're vegan, uh, ice cream bars with dark chocolate. They're delicious. I love them. I eat one every day, no matter what. <laughs> I have to say, I found a Van Leeuwen uh, vegan ice cream from Whole Foods. I, I get it delivered, but their Sicilian pistachio makes me weep. It's so joyful. So have oh. you, you don't look like it. Have you gained weight in COVID? Are you? Uh, no, because I'm walking every day. I'm walking about 45 minutes every day, not only for my back, my body, but for my head. Okay, so how, does that give you anxiety? The walking? No, no okay. I love the walking. The walking helps me. Okay, but are there people, are people wearing masks in your neighborhood? Well, here's the thing. It's, I would say it's, I go early, 7 in the morning, 7.45 or so, and uh -huh. I would say a lot of people are, but a lot of people aren't. And it really bothers me. You know, I feel it's just, I'm angry. If we had leadership that said, okay, we're in this, we're going to get through it. This is what we're all going to do. I'm going to mandate this. Don't get mad at me, but this is what we're going to do. And we're going right. to shut this thing down. We don't right. have that, as you know. So don't get me on that tangent. But um, no, I don't have that. Yeah, no, it's just, it's, uh, so all I can do is take care of myself. I, I have friends that are doing uh, socially distance gatherings. I'm not there. Uh -huh. Totally not there. Mm -hmm. But um, I, so I think. How is it different to do a socially distanced gathering as opposed to going to the supermarket? Why is that different for you? Well, I guess I feel like I can, con well, I can control my distance. But if you're sitting in someone's backyard or wherever it is, or you're sitting across, it just feels, to me, that feels in a way deliberate. Deliberately, for me, it's a deliberate risk that I'm taking. Mm -hmm. This is about getting food in my house. Right. And I try to go at the best time that I can go when there's few people there. So when, so, is, when is the best time to go? I can't hear you all of a sudden. You can't oh. hear me? Well, I'll tell you something. Early in the morning, 7.30 is not bad, except there are a lot of Instacart shoppers then. Um, and the evening, oddly enough, you know, 7.30 in the evening or 8 o'clock is a really good time. I find there's hardly anyone in my market. Do they still have hmm? grocery? Do they still have produce and stuff yeah. at night? Yes. Yeah. I mean, in the beginning, of course, you had to go early or by, you know, the afternoon, there was no nothing there. Now right. everything's pretty well stocked. So that's good. So but I miss, you know what I miss? I miss calling a friend saying, hey, you want to grab a bite? Want to meet for dinner? You know, that's just that. To be able to be free to do that. And you can't do it. You know, it's really sad to me. I keep thinking of that Private Benjamin moment when Goldie Hawn says, I want to go out to lunch. You know, and yes. I want to go out to lunch. We were talking about it this afternoon. Yeah. I want a manicure and a pedicure. Please. I you know, I just want to say, I was scheduled. Why did you? I'm so jealous. Oh, this is I scheduled and then we got shut down. This is press on nails from Target. I swear to God. It's oh, good job, girl. I could not do that. They'd be all over me somewhere. Well, <laughs> not on my nails. It's the thing in the world. It's the only way to, to, to manicure these things. <laughs> 
so okay so it's changed your life in that you can't you can't you're not doing your socializing are are you doing um are you doing social things on on zoom, on zoom. yes yeah yeah i meet with my girlfriends we meet every not we about three times a week and we you know don't we talk about whatever and uh yeah that's pretty much what we do and i have zoom meetings with whoever invites me really <laughs> you know <laughs> And, but you're able to do your business. It's wonderful that that's yes. up and running for people who need it. So Nancy, if anybody out there is a caretaker for someone with cancer, if anybody has it themselves, how can they get involved with WeSpark? Contact WeSpark, send us, you know, info at WeSpark. Uh, go to our website, www.wespark.org. Send us the request, It'll, the information will be there and we will schedule a brief intake either on telehealth or zoom and get you signed up and get you going for services we'd love to help you if you need help and it's all free and um, i can tell you the most loving wonderful therapists practitioners and instructors they're just so devoted so wow. and do yeah. you advise people if they need to find an oncologist if they need to find do you help people with that well, we don't, we don't give medical referrals, but what we suggest is that they talk to other uh, participants, mm -hmm. do your homework, investigate, you know, get the information. Don't just settle, really look into it, but no, we can't refer. And how, how can people support you? How can people support WeSpark, those out there who that's wish a, to? That's a great question because you know, we normally would have would be on our second fundraiser this year, and it's been a very rough, rough year. And, you know, COVID cancer was here before COVID and our patients, the people that come to us have already had a lot of people have lost their jobs, don't have the income, don't have the resources. So um, please help us help them by giving us a donation of any kind, it's not too small and it's not too large. If you go to our website, there's big buttons everywhere that say donate. And uh, we'd be so grateful. So for all of you out there having a Facebook birthday coming up and they say, would you like to do a fundraiser? We Spark is an excellent choice. I mean, sometimes people have these like crazy, I mean, I, everybody's got to do their own thing, but they have like, you know, support pelicans in the Antarctic. <laughs> I don't know. Instead of supporting a pelican in the Antarctic, you might want to consider We Spark. And no, thank you. Yes, that's true. Actually, we just got a nice check. Somebody did it. I have. I don't even know who, because you never know who it is, really, ah. unless they let you know. We just got the check comes in from Network for Good, so they're all the donors are anonymous, so we can't thank them. But uh, I'm thanking you now if you're one of those people. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay, so let's let's get back. So so okay, so you know you had it. Have there been any COVID? I'm back to that. Have there been any um, lasting like? I've heard there are people called the long haulers who get like a recurrence uh, and it lasts for a long time. Have you had any, did you lose the taste in your, did you taste buds get affected? No. No, you know, let me just say this. I couldn't tell you because I was having a hard time eating. I was drinking all day long a mixture of uh, sliced ginger, like, like a tea of ginger and honey and lemon uh -huh. constantly. So soup i was eating soup so i don't even know what my taste buds were but i, I don't think i lost the taste and smell i don't think so and uh, i'm convinced that it didn't get 
worse because of the steroid and the antibiotic, or I might have gone into the pneumonia. I don't really know. I feel very, I feel like I dodged a bullet, honestly, because I have had pneumonia. And I think I, at my age, I, I don't have any underlying illnesses, but I think I could have easily have gotten very, very ill. And, and so you don't have any recurrent, like you got, how long did it take till you got your energy back until you weren't exhausted anymore? Oh, quite a while. I mean, I was five weeks coughing and I would say probably not until maybe mid-March or so when we closed down the office, you know, so it took a long time. And did Jay get it from you? No, I think I got it from Jay, but I met him in Vegas. He had been there for four days, and I got there on a Thursday. He was, wasn't was feeling well on the Friday, Friday, and he didn't feel well on Saturday, and I took care of him. And then um, Sunday, we came home, and Monday, I woke up sick. So I blame oh it. But he started coughing, but he didn't. his didn't ever develop the way that mine did. Mm -hmm. uh, so... I don't know. I'd like and to think it was because I took such care of him. Correct. Hmm? He tested negative for the oh. antibodies, didn't he? He tested negative for the antibodies. You know, so, there's a lot of talk about that, that they're not sure it, the antibodies in some people only last weeks. Some people it lasts months. They have, can you get sick again? They don't know. They don't know uh, anything. They don't We're know. We're on a learning curve together. Everybody, you know, it's not like you can call a friend and say, Hey, what did you do in the well, last pandemic? I think we are learning and I think we are, we are educating each other, asking a lot of questions. We've had a lot of people on shooting the shit who've told us uh, about their journey. It, a tracer told, said that the one symptom that everybody she traced had was the stomach part, which you didn't have, which is interesting. No. So that's garbage. Um, but I did read two things in the last 24 hours, which I just want to share with everybody because it's really interesting. One is, they discovered in Wuhan that people who took Pepsid um, got over the virus quicker and did better, and there was less mortality. People who that. people who took Prilosec did worse and were more likely to die and were more likely wow. to have complications. And so, even people who didn't have the stomach part, if they took Pepsid, their whole COVID did better. Then Cindy Beagle sent me this morning, this is mind blowing. So it turns out they've just discovered that they think melatonin prevents people from getting the lung disease of COVID. Wow. And, and so what's interesting is that my boyfriend takes this dream water every night to go to sleep. And he's, he, anyway, he, he is not careful. He's not COVID crazy like I am, but he doesn't have it. And I'm thinking, wow. So, but what's crazy to me is that he ordered some of his dream water stuff and he accidentally sent it to me. And last night I was thinking, oh, I forgot to give him his dream water. And then I couldn't go to sleep. And I, I've been only getting four hours. And I thought, I'm going to see if I can keep half of those. I should try it. Melatonin doesn't really agree with me. It makes me um, groggy in the morning. But I thought if I just take a little and then Cindy sends me this thing this morning. Well, I'm confiscating half his case of dream water. <laughs> but isn't it interesting that they're finding out from Wuhan now all these months later, okay, take, yeah. okay, take melatonin. So I'm wondering- I take melatonin three days a week. Now, why? How, how do you work that out? Why three days a week? 
Because on the other days, on the, or on the odd days, I take progesterone, which is, does help me sleep at night. It's one of my hormones. But when I can't take that, I have difficulty sleeping. So I take the melatonin. I do feel a little bit groggy in the morning, as you mentioned, but it seems to pass pretty quickly. How much I'm not willing to lie there all night and toss and turn. I'm just not willing. How much do you, how, what's your dose? Do you know? Just one little one. I don't know. The lowest, I think it's, I don't even know. I'd have to look. Now I'm wondering if perhaps you didn't get the pneumonia because you were taking melatonin. And I maybe wasn't taking it then. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. But maybe you wouldn't have had the cost so bad. I don't know. Who knows? It's just interesting. These What's happening? Something happened. What happened? Can you, are you still, are you live? Are you good? I don't know. It's sort of all frozen, but maybe it's on my end. Um, okay, so Nancy, let's get to a lot of these people weren't here a few years ago when I had you on the road taken and we, we talked about your past, but it's it's your Bronx girl, which cracks me up as am I. So your girl from the Bronx, what what what, what did you want? Tell me when you were a little girl, what, what, what was the dream? What was your dream? <laughs> little, little. I wanted to be, I was talking about this with my friends. I don't know where it came from because I'd never been to a circus. I wanted to be a tightrope walker. I was going to be a cowgirl. And uh, <laughs> you know, and then I don't know. I think I wanted to be a dancer because I was studying dancing. The acting came later. But as a child, I was a weird kid. I didn't like watching cartoons. I watched movies. I used to love to watch movies over and over and over. On. Do you remember Million Dollar Movie? Do you remember oh, that? Yeah. All week long. Oh, so, yeah. That, that's what I had in mind. I don't think I cared much. I didn't say, oh, I can't wait to get grow up and get married and have kids. I never said that. Uh -huh. Never said, oh, I want to be a teacher. I just, I was, yeah, I was a kind of a weird kid, I guess. So, when, so okay, were you a good student? Was uh... I was a very good student, but I was, I was very shy, very shy. Uh, but a good student. I studied until I got into teenage years. I was going to performing arts high school. Which was the fame school, and that was pretty much the end of my academic life. Did I seem to recall something happened because performing arts was my dream, and I didn't get in because I got a D in math. But oh. um, yeah, that kind of screwed my dream. But didn't something happen to you at performing arts that your parents didn't know? I seem to recall there's a story oh. here. Oh no! <laughs> well, I went in as a dance major. Okay, okay. and <clears throat> I wanted. I loved modern dance like Martha Graham and so the first week you do these classes and the teachers watch you and they pick you for their program so the modern dance teacher tapped me on the shoulder and she picked me for a program but someone overlooked my number and so I sat there and I thought oh my god so I ended up in the B group which was the we don't know what to do with this group <laughs> I was so crestfallen that I just, the year was like a bust for me. And at the end of the year, that same teacher that had tapped me, she called me and she's, well, so you know, it's the end of the year. And we just think you'll be happier somewhere else. So it's not like in the movie Fame where they go, okay, I'm switching to the drama department. Oh no, they kick you to the curb. Oh, so my God. all summer long, and my father didn't want me to go there. And I'm sitting there all summer knowing that I have no place to go to school for my junior year. And two weeks before school started, I I went to my father. I was a little manipulative because I knew my mother would be 
And I said, Dad, you were so right. I shouldn't have gone there, and I don't want to go back. And he said, you see, Flo, my mother, see, Flo, I told you it was going to be a shitty school. And so wow. he scrambled and you know, found a school for me. It was a private school across from Carnegie Hall where um, I took dance classes and a couple of friends of mine went, Quintano School for the Young Professionals, which was basically, you don't ever have to go to school kind of school. <laughs> So were you like in, were you in school play? I mean, where did this start for you? No, it started for me really when I ended up in that school and I met a gal. Uh, she was in my class. She says my mother is a manager for teenagers and she'd love to. You'd be great in commercials. And I was summertime was coming. I said, do they pay you for that? Because I didn't get a job. She says they do. They pay you. So. She introduced me to her mother. She signed me up and she started sending me out on, you know, there was like five auditions a day. There were so many commercials, especially if you were a teenager. Wow. And except that I would go there. If they handed me lines, like a script, I would excuse myself and say, I'll be right back. I'm just going to the restroom. And I would leave. And no. I think they'll never know. They'll just think I didn't get called back. And finally, my, my oh, it was my kitty. My, um, <laughs> this is kitty cat. Uh, my manager found out that I was leaving and she said, you have to leave. I said, well, I don't know how to say these words. So I started, I went to an acting coach who started coaching me and that's where it began. And I thought, well, this is kind of fun. I kind of like, I liked it. And it seemed uh -huh. you know, like it really fit. And I remember that when I was a kid, when I was in grade school, what we used to do at, at, at uh, lunch break is I'd say, you know what? Let's do this. You're going to be this character. You're going to be this character. And this is, I create these little improvisations and we just play make believe, you know, make believe this and make believe that. So it, uh, it just started evolving from there. I started taking classes and then I went out, auditioned on different, you know, a few little movies that would pass through New York, but that's how it started. And did you accidentally? accidentally. <laughs> so when did the passion start? How did the passion start? Did the passion start? You know, I I think that I, for in the beginning, remember I'm now 15 turning 16 and doing commercials and all the kids in the school were doing, it was kind of fun for us. We'd all go on auditions together and it was really fun. And I think that as I recall, I got a part, a small part in the last detail uh, they originally offered me the part of the hooker, but I didn't think I could do that. And so they offered me this other part. And I remember being on the set. Hal Ashby was the director. It was Jack Nicholson, Randy Quaid. And I'm sitting there. And I just think, I remember that. I couldn't even hear the sound of the camera when it turned on. And that environment was, there was something very seductive about it. And I thought, remember leaving that was I was probably 22 then and I remember thinking I need to pursue this and I spent another couple of years in New York and I woke up one day and I thought I've sold everything possible known to man in a commercial if I don't go to California now I'm never going to do it so I literally just picked up and went to California and uh, got the agent did the whole thing but the passion when I walked on that first day on the soundstage, it was like, <gasps> it was kind of how I felt when I moved to Greenwich Village, that when I went, oh my God, these, this is my tribe, these are my people. 
that's what it felt like when I walked on the soundstage. It was like, here's my people. This is where I belong. It was such a, I felt at home, you know? And that's when I became passionate about it. I so. believe in all that stuff. I mean, like, have you ever like gone apartment hunting and you walk into that one and you say, this is it. I belong here. Yeah. And I think yes. it's that, that way with everything in life. Like we just know, we get that feeling. So, totally. right. How was, uh, how was Jack with you? He was great. He's Jack. I mean, <laughs> Jack Nicholson. We did this little improvisation, you know, Hal Ashby wasn't about the script or anything. Anyway, we did it. And, and Jack said, Oh my God, she's so good. Is she good? And all of that. Instead of feeling excited, I got so embarrassed. <laughs> I felt so uncomfortable, which worked for me because the character was supposed to be really uptight. But uh, the funny part is I had a, I had a, I was so nervous. I had a few glasses of wine at lunch when we all went to lunch and we came back afterwards and the cameraman saying, what did they do to her makeup? She's all red. You know, this is from the world. What did they do to her makeup? And I'm, Dying, and of course, they're more embarrassed. I'm getting the red around getting. <laughs> oh my! Yeah, and have did you remain friends with Jack? Like, have you seen Jack over the years? Have you? you no, know, I saw. Yes, I saw him a couple times. I remember when I when I um that was shot in Toronto. When I came out to California, I I screen tested for Carrie, and I I contacted him, and I said, oh, you know, I asked him about how do you know, and he says, you know what. He says, I've never gotten a job from screen testing. I got a job for reading for somebody else's screen test. They hired me and not the other person. Wow. So, you know, that was, yeah. And then just sort of bumped into him, but we didn't really stay, we didn't really stay in touch. Okay. So you got, you got the last detail. Did things like just take off from there? What, what happened? No, after I went back to New York and did commercials for another few years. And that when I came out to do, uh, to pursue a film career, I was in California here for, I came in September and was cast, I te screen tested in November. So I was only here a couple of months. I was ready to turn around and go back. I thought this is taking way too long to get going. I need a, I need a paycheck. I need a paycheck. I need to go back to New York. Are your parents, what are your, how do your parents feel about the fact that you're doing this? My mother loved it. You know, she loved it all. My father was so not about any of it. He just thought it was a big mistake and I should go get an education and, you know, a teaching degree and use my, my mind and all of that. And these Hollywood phonies and what makes, you know, he was very negative, you know, so I had, it was like, my mother's going, you can do anything. And my father going, what makes you think you can do this? It was like, my sister, my daughter, my sister. <laughs> so, so, there, so you didn't do college. You didn't. That I didn't do college. I barely, I didn't even go to my high school graduation. Okay. But you, did you graduate? Yeah, I did. I have a diploma somewhere. <laughs> okay. uh, T-Bear was asking if you grew up in Yonkers, but you didn't. You grew up in the Bronx. as I. We moved to Yonkers when I was 10. Yeah, where, when I was where in, where in, he's asking me if you where in Yonk if you I don't well, know near Roosevelt High School, so Central Avenue near Tuckahoe Road. All right. So, oh God, we used to go ice skating in, in Tuckahoe. Oh. Right? Remember that ice skating? And yes. so, yeah, so there was Stella Dora where you used we used to <laughs> that was like a good thing. And Murphy, Patricia Murphy. Do you remember Patricia that? Murphy's? We were right next door to that. You'd hear party for four. <laughs> 
Patricia Murphy was a big deal. That was like oh, big deal. That was very classy going to Patricia Murphy. Yes. Um, okay, so so you come out to California now. Is uh, now I could be getting this part of the story wrong. Did Harriet Hilberg have anything to do with you getting cast? Yes. Okay. Yes, she did. That totally. I was uh, literally there's a uh, what do you call it? Uh, not a health club. Where you exercise? One of those places. A gym. <laughs> A gym, thank you. I was coming out of the, uh, I'm coming out of the steam room, and uh, I hear, see, is that Nancy Allen? And I said, I turned around, yes, and it was Harriet. I said, oh, hey, Harriet. She cast me in commercials in New York. Uh -huh. And she said, oh, well, I'm, what are you doing here? I'm casting this movie, and blah, blah, blah. And, and I called, who's your agent? And I told her, and she said, oh, I called him. He said he didn't really have any one right for the part. So she said, well, you know what? Tomorrow's the last day of casting and you won't get the part, but at least you'll get to read for the director. Come over to Culver City, pick up the script. So that's what I did. I picked up the script. I stayed up all night writing a biography of the character, reading the book. I mean, on and on and on. And I was the last person of the last day oh. to read for Carrie. And I wasn't thinking I'm going to get the part. And when I got home, there was a message saying, okay, we're going to screen test you. I just, I couldn't believe it, you know? And was that the part that you read for? Was that what they saw you as right away? You were the mean girl. It was. It was the bad girl. And uh, a lot of people have written and said, oh, no, no, I was up for Carrie. I was never up for the role of Carrie. The only only sissy and one other actress was up for that. Um, but so I think you were playing um, the uh, the Amy Irving role. You could have possibly done that role. I think. Well, I could have. Then I would have thought that that's what they would have wanted me for. And in fact, um, the producer thought I looked too nice. So first, poor Harriet. I felt bad for her because she was calling me from the screening and saying, "I love you. You're going to get this part." And the next morning, I. Called, I, I called my mother. I said, oh, my God, I got this great part in a movie. And the next morning, the phone rang, and it was Harry. And she says, uh, Nancy, I probably shouldn't have said anything, but they're going to look in New York. The, the producer wants to see other actresses. And I said, but I told my mother. You know, it's like, I'm not too bad. This is done. This is a done deal. Yeah. So then it was November, and I wasn't really set in the role until I think it was late January. Yeah. So now, so now all that time you're thinking, oh, my God, I didn't get it. Are you yes, getting it? And they, they put me on hold for some character that didn't barely even exist in the script. And then uh, the director, Brian De Palma, had a screening of Obsession, his most recent film. And there was Billy Cat and Amy and Sissy and John. And I think that was who was there and me. And we were all outside saying, oh, isn't this great? We all got our parts. And I said, well. I didn't, <laughs> and I felt so embarrassed. But then Brian brought me in with Amy the next day, I think, or a few days later, and we read a couple of scenes, and then Amy left, and I remember he and Harriet came and into the room and said, well, you've got the part. And it was a funny thing. You would think I would have been screaming, but it was, in a way, anticlimactic, strangely. You know, I was kind of like, oh, okay. And uh, then... I didn't get excited until I was going to fly home to New York. I'd never thought about my mortality. And I thought, wait a minute, I can't get on a plane. What if I die before I get to act in a movie? You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so, okay. So that ended up impacting your life in so many ways. I mean, the film is iconic. 
John totally. Drew, working with John, and then Brian, that whole thing. Before we get to Brian, let's talk about John for a minute. Did you know Kelly Preston? Um, had you? No, we never met. No, no. But I, I can imagine she must have been lovely because John is such a dear human being. Okay, so let's talk about John for a minute because you got not only to have that incredible experience with him, but then also blow up. So what was your relationship with John like when you started on Carrie? Well, we were, you know, we were uh, cohorts. We did everything together. We drove together. He, we lived very close. He would drive or I would drive. We'd share rides. He was just really, he hadn't really hit in right. um, Welcome Back Cotter yet. Uh, so we were really close. We had a great time together. Uh, we thought we were the comic, at least I thought we were the comic relief in the film because everybody always laughed. The crew always laughed at us when we were working together. I had no idea people would hate us. <laughs> but um, he was just a really, really kind, fun, wonderful person. I remember him coming, saying to me <clears throat> one night after uh, going to the rushes of the day before, we were we came out of the screening room and he, he went to have somebody to eat. He says, you know, he said, people are going to be really surprised when they see you because they'll know you're pretty, but they're going to be really surprised to see how good you are. And I just... You know, oh. he, it was just he was a very kind, uh, supportive person. And we had great chemistry, John and I. Yes, it was just magic, magic between us. And um, so, you know, and by the end, I remember going to shoot the car when the car flips out on the out mm -hmm. uh, night, that night shoot. And when we pulled up, there were all these fans. They had to put up, you know, like barricades. And I thought. Oh my God! What happened? You know, it just—it's like overnight it happened. What did it happen from Welcome Back Hot? Did some? Did yes. it get on? Yes, it was all about that, and it was just stunning. Barbarino, just exactly. <laughs> did, you, did you and John ever date? Did you date? Did you ever have that that? Mo did you have that moment of? We didn't. We they did. They said we did, but we didn't. We hung out together. We had dinners together, but there was never that between us. Um, in fact, was seeing Diana Highland was that her name? Not at that time. No, that was later. So it just it just wasn't that wasn't part of your chemistry with them. No, no. And I was I was with someone at the time. I was with somebody uh, at the time, and uh, it, it just yeah, it just didn't happen. So now, but it wasn't with Brian yet either, was it? Or no. what? Okay, no. so how did that develop? You know, it's funny that John, it was at the end, that last night of shooting, we all, the three of us had dinner together. Uh, you know, on set, everybody was eating, but we sat together. And, uh, and Brian got up to go back to work, and John goes, he likes you. And I said, what are you talking about? I mean, I, was just, I said, you're crazy. You know what you're talking about. And uh, so that was that. And Brian had invited the cast. He said, if anybody's in New York, because that's where he edited, whenever you're in New York in the next few months, give me a call and you guys can come to the editing room and Paul Hirsch, who's our ed the editor, will show you one of your scenes in progress. So I had gone to visit my mother at the end of May. We finished, we wrapped shooting in April, beginning of April. And um, it was like the day before I went back to LA. I called, I thought, well, I'll give a call. So I called. He said, oh, come on over. We're just wrapping up. So I went over to the editing room and there was, you know, Paul Hirsch was so amazing. And he had a picture up of John and I from some magazine. And uh, they showed me two of the scenes and uh, which was great. And then he said to me, you want to grab a bite to eat? And I said, sure. 
So we went to dinner, went to Victor's up on the Upper West Side, Victor's oh, Cuban Cafe. Yeah. And uh, we did have we did enjoy some margaritas that night, as I recall. And um, we, it was like I saw him as a completely different person because he's very okay, serious. Did you have a crush? You didn't have a crush on him on set? Oh, no. No. Oh, no. Not at all. He was very serious on the set, not fun at all. And all of a sudden, I'm having dinner with this man. He's funny and we're having a great time. And it was really like, who is this guy? You know, he says, What's your birthday? I have to remember your birthday. And then we went to drive downtown. I had a, I was, uh, I don't know where I was staying. I don't even remember. We got in the cab and he kissed me. And I'm, I was completely gobsmacked. And uh, I thought, well, that felt like something that I wasn't expecting. And then I left for LA. And about a month later, he called me from the editing room and they were all singing happy birthday to me. And was sweet. He said, I'm coming to LA and uh, I'll be out. And I said, oh, really? What do you want me to do? Put it in the, the print trades? Or I made some sarcastic remark. <laughs> you know, that was really the beginning of it. And that's how it started. So. And so how was, okay, so you were saying how you kept repeating the same thing. So did you bring your youth into that? Was that, that part, was that marriage part of repeating your history? I would say so because he's not like a abusive in a way like he's not it wasn't verbally abusive but he was emotionally really detached mm. do you know what I'm saying mm. he could be funny and wonderful but then you know not really there was just something I mean I don't want to get into too much of that but I remember my mother, we all had dinner, and I wasn't really thinking. I was not thinking about marriage, as I told you. That wasn't on my mind at that time. Uh -huh. But I remember my, my parents, and I said, so what did you think of it? She says, well, you know, he's fun, but he's not the type of man you marry. And I said, who's talking about getting married? You know? But, uh, and, you know, we, end, we, end, we actually we did end up getting married. We broke up. And he was very odd in some ways. And then uh, I remember saying to him, I, you don't even know what you want. You know, I know I want to at some point get married and have kids and, you know, I don't want to be whatever. And so he said, I do. I want to get married. Let's do, let's do it. And um, so not exactly the most romantic proposal, but we did get married and it was great until it wasn't great. How long? You know? how, how long? And uh, it was about... Well, we got together in 76 and we separated in 82. So. Did you get out as soon as it started getting bad? Did you take care of yourself or did you stay in it? Because I have a habit. No, no, no. no, no. He, it was he that removed himself. He could not do it. He huh? could not do it. Mm. And I, of course, looked at myself and wanted to blame myself. And then it was through really, it took years for me, that for me was the beginning of my descent into absolute, almost like a breakdown because I wasn't, I wasn't put together that way. I thought you get married and that's it. And then you're right. married and then you stay married. Right. And so when that fell apart, first of all, the, that it was so public and I'm so private and it all seemed so mean and it just, my heart was broken. I had no tools at all for dealing with it. Mm -hmm. And um, it took me, I blamed myself. I kept thinking, what did I do? And, uh, and it took years of therapy for me to see, no, no, no. 
He can't stay in a committed relationship. It's his issue, not your issue. I had other issues, but it wasn't about that. So, um, yeah. It it's was, interesting uh, that as a cancer in a homebody that your your dream wasn't to get married and have kids, that that wasn't part of your thing. It's interesting. Well, it didn't. It came later. You know, it came later. Like I, we were, I was 28 when we got married. Mm -hmm. So that's when I was starting to just think about it. I mean, I think it was very career driven. I was in pursuit of that. It was very independent. My mother encouraged me to, she never, you know, I didn't have one of those mothers that encouraged me to, to get married. Get married. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I remember being a teenager and going to all these cousins' weddings, these big weddings. And I remember saying to her, don't ever think you're going to, I'm going to be doing that. That's never going to be happening for me. Wow. I thought if I did get married, it would be very private, a very private affair. And what did you get married? And did you have a little? We did. We got married in our apartment. My parents came and, you know, we had his best friend, my best friend. And then I should have known. It was just so weird. After the ceremony, for our, he had his friends come over and then had the marriage certificate pinned up on the wall and then filmed their reaction when he went to it. It was like a little weird, you know. <laughs> I wonder what happened to that footage. <laughs> well, it's a filmmaker, I guess. So, okay, so after Carrie, uh, Dress to Kill, it was what was Dress to Kill I now? Hold your hand. Bob Zemeckis' yeah. movie, first okay. movie. That's where I met Wendy, and Bob was, you know, Bob Zemeckis, Bob Gale, Steven Spielberg was the executive producer, and, you know, Zemeckis' first direct, it was his directorial debut. He was 26 years old. And how was, was that? Hmm? Was that a fun set? It was a great set. We had a blast. We mm. really did. Wendy and I, and of course, Teresa Saldana, who's also gone now. And we were like, you know, Mo, Larry, and Curly. We were inseparable, you know. Um, and so did that, did did Carrie roll right into that? Did, no. like, okay. So there it was, was a year and a half before I did. I, I, I had some offers, but they were pretty much the same character in really shitty high school pictures. And, um, and I waited. I wanted to wait. But so when you were things down after your kind of garbage, you know. <laughs> so, but uh, I wanted to do I wanted to do something good. I wanted to build a career, you know. And this came along, and I loved it. I just loved the script. I fell madly in love. And of course, I was a teenager right. when the Beatles came in 1964. So I thought, I know these girls. I know this character, you know. So. Okay, so then you did that one, and then did that parlay into the next gig? Like, did you roll into the next gig from that? Well, after, I'm trying to think. After that, oh, uh, Brian did a movie called Home Movies. Mm -hmm. It was me, it was Kirk Douglas, Keith Gordon, Garrett Graham, Mary um, uh, Davenport. That was fun. Oh, Vincent Cardinia. Oh, my oh. God. I just, oh, he was just amazing. So that was, that was a little you know, a small picture, but at that time, it was right after that that Brian and I broke up. And I oh, came back and told him, Kirk Douglas like? Oh, he's Kirk Douglas. <laughs> it's just like, it's Kirk Douglas. You know, you just, you can't separate the man from the star. It's like he's in the room and he just says, hello, hello, you know, that Kirk Douglas way. He's just amazing. I loved him. Okay, so you and Brian break up, and then your career is... Yeah, I go back to L.A., and I do uh, Stephen Spielberg cast me in 1941. 
Okay, and, now, so that uh, didn't do well at the box office, but that had to be incredible fun to do, I would assume. That cast. Oh First of all, the original draft of the script, which was wow. Neckis and Hill, was mm -hmm. perfection. It did evolve to the point with the, all the colors in the script, the pages kept changing, and finally everyone just threw their script away. But, <laughs> I mean, it started out to be, I think it was a 14-week shoot. It was a six-month shoot. So that's what it was like. Mm -hmm. And... Every day, I mean, every day. So, but I had Belushi and Aykroyd and Tim Matheson and Treat Williams and Wendy. And, you yeah. know, I mean, we just, we had so much fun. And of course, it's said, this, we're talking about what year was that? 1978 ish. It was yeah. pretty crazy on the set. Yeah. Night shoot, six weeks of night shoots. Oh, yeah, we were flying all night long. Okay, so let's talk about that a minute. So, Substances. Um, at what point did that become a part of your life? Well, certainly at that point in Hollywood, it was part of it was just being part of the environment. And I remember someone say, you know, it's 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 kind of like this is people actually talk like that. It's kind of like a cup of coffee. You know, it's not addictive and, you know, cocaine and all that. It's like, oh, OK, you know, and I didn't really want to get into drugs. I was so afraid of losing my mind. You know, I wanted to be in control. But I remember the first time and thinking, wow, okay, so this is the missing link, you know? And uh, it seems really great at first. And then, you know, smash cut to however long later and what seems like fun and what seems very engaging and you're talking, you're part of it, it actually takes you out of your life, just like any kind of alcohol or substance. Like all of a sudden, it's just that. It's like, it's talking to you, come here, I want you, you know, and you're there and, you know, this homebody's there and it's just um, that. And um, it's, it's really, it's a dark, it's like going into the darkness really. And uh, not everybody has addiction issues and, but I'm a, I'm that person that smoked until I couldn't smoke another cigarette. You know what I mean? How long ago did and, you smoke cigarettes? Oh, uh, 1986, July. It's a long so, time ago. So you were sober first? You got you gave up substances first? I did. Yes. Was, there, was there a bottom? Was there a was there a dark was there a before you hit the light? Did you hit a bottom of darkness? Well, I'll just tell it I'll tell it this way. I was out here finishing a movie, uh, uh, actually the Philadelphia experiment, and I remember I was living holed up at the Chateau Marmont. That was my place. Ooh. I loved it. And especially in those days, it was very different in those days than it is now. It's very la-la-la now. It was not so la-la-la. It was more of a hideout for everybody. Anyway, I remember sitting in Barney's Beanery thinking, I've got to eat something. I'd been probably going up and going for about two days and sitting there thinking, I wonder how little I have to work to maintain this lifestyle. Isn't this what all creative people, like writers and creative people, isn't this what they, isn't this what they do? And so that was that. I went back. I remember going back to New York when I finished the picture, going home. And um, I was sitting with a friend of mine, old friend of mine. Uh, and <laughs> I was sitting, we'd gone to dinner, and now I'm now having, I think, my third Remy Stinger, and uh, which I don't recommend. <laughs> And 
just sitting there with the first drink's always like, ha, ha, ha. The next drink's like, well, let me tell you something. And the third drink, I'm crying. And I'm saying, my life, you know. And I, kind of think, and I looked at him and I said, weren't we doing this last night? And he said, yeah. And I thought, okay, I'm so done. And I could see the repetitiveness. And, um, but that, that was the beginning of, that was the beginning of the end for me. It really was. I thought I'm done. I'm so done. I can't live like this anymore. And, uh, I have to, cause I really, I, I was like a vampire. I lived at night, you know, I'd be up all night and, and you know, that little crack of light would come in the window or the birds are like, Oh God, I can't take it. So, um, I felt like I was dying, you know, and I think, I don't know if I was physically dying, but I certainly, my spirit was dying mm. and I, it was like, I really had to save my own life to stop, you know, was, and, it, uh, was it difficult for you or were you just done and you were able to just do it when you made the decision? It was not so difficult because I remember, I think it was the day, the next day, I remember um, having, it was like five o'clock and I thought it was a little, it was kind of shaking. I remember having a thing, well, let me have a drink. And I had a drink and I felt nothing. And that was weird. And wow. another drink. And I felt, it was like nothing. Wow. I felt nothing. So um, I, th I think, I don't know. It was divine intervention. I don't know what the hell it was, but I didn't, that was it for me. I think I had one more escapade in me uh, at Christmas time. And, uh, and that was it. And, you know, that's a long time ago now. It's over 35 years ago. Which is absolutely astounding. It, and has there been, uh, has it been easy-ish to make, was there ever a time when you thought, did you ever question it? Did you ever question being sober? No. No, I mean, it just feels natural, really, to me at this point. And I feel like, I really feel like that's who I am. And, um, you know, I just one of those people that happen to have an allergy to mm -hmm. substances, to alcohol. Um, I, I only really was useful because I was so shy. It was like a social lubricant. And I think the divorce, I look at the divorce and having no coping mechanism, no way to deal with all of those feelings. It was medication for me. I just didn't know I was killing myself. And um, yeah, I, 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 I think it's just miraculous because really, really the, the worst of it was only close, not even three years. Oh, but, wow. Um, it's like I wouldn't touch another cigarette. I wouldn't touch anything because I think I'm, you know, it's even with, I, what was I, was I telling you? Chocolate, ice cream, whatever. It's like every day I have my ice cream. But, you're, um, having fun. you're not, you're not. Yeah. It's like things are fun. It's like, I like to be alive. I like to be, you know, really present in my life and really present with the people that I'm with. And, and you're not. And I can see that when I'm with people who have, after they've had their second cocktail, they're like, they're either repeating themselves or their eyes are glazing over. Do you even yeah. know that I'm here with you? But I don't judge anyone because I think we all do what we have to do in this life to enjoy our life. And many people, 
Many people can just, you know, it's a beverage or it's, I mean, drugs are drugs. I say stay away from them because I think they're really dangerous and you don't know. I think I'm lucky to be alive, honestly, mm. really lucky to be alive. Do you think you take, you have a little alcohol, you take a little Coke, oh, you take a pill because you're too nervous, you need to go to sleep. I mean, how many times do you hear about someone just, do you know what's going to be the thing that's going to kill you? You just don't know. Right. You know, physically, our physical body, we're all different. So um, I, uh, I, it's like, I insist on enjoying my life today and I don't really need anything. What could be better? I mean, we're just sitting here talking, we're having fun and uh, nothing would make it better. Except if we were together. That would be better. Right, and we were having lunch in a restaurant. (laughs) So, so, okay, so you were with Belushi. I mean, 1941, that's historically like when he was at the height of his kind of, so was the set difficult because of that? Were there challenges because of that? Oh my God, there were such challenges. Uh, the first challenge, the first challenge was that they were shooting around uh, Danny and John's schedule with Saturday Night Live. That was the first problem. So that really set everything back. But um, John, who was the dearest, most adorable, fabulous human being as himself, but once he got into the drugs and everything, you never knew what you were going to get. Um. And he would be up all night. And he'd get to the set maybe three hours late. And he'd say, you got about two hours. It's all I got for you. And so they'd have to figure it out and shoot. And that's, oh. yeah. So wow. it was kind of tricky. Um, and he and Danny kept rewriting things. It was, it was, it was tough. It was really tough. Mm-hmm. But you couldn't, I was, I was just crazy about him. My, one of my favorite set pictures is a picture uh, of, there's Robert Stack is in the background and John's hovering over me, you know, grabbing me. And I just, I really loved him. He was a really dear person. When his wife visited the set, when she'd come and visit him, he'd be great. He really oh. needed her. She's a very, you know, grounding force for him. But uh, he was tough. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about Dress to Kill because it's, it's one of my favorite movies. It's just, I, what was it like to work with Michael Caine? Well, he is, I, I could barely speak when I met him at rehearsals. I mean, Michael Caine, he was the nicest. He's so funny. I'll tell you that. He's hysterically funny. And he's a Brit. I mean, they're so, you know, they're not in no method, none of this kind of stuff. He's just a fun guy and knows his lines, is on time. Wow. Very charming. I mean, it's Michael Caine. He's extremely charming and sexy. And uh, and when he had to uh, don the wig and the makeup and all of that stuff, that day was very tense on the set while he was in makeup. And uh, Brian said to me, he said, you know, I think you should go in and see Michael so that, you know, you feel comfortable and you don't start laughing or something when he walks on the set. So I walk into, I knock in his dressing room and I walk in and he's there in full makeup wig, everything with a big cigar. (laughs) And, you know, he came on the set, very macho New York set, and he walks on the set and you could feel the tension. He looks around, he says, you know, I always knew that if I worked long enough and hard enough, I'd get to play me mom. And everybody laughed and that was the end of it. And one one other thing I'll tell you, because it just tells you what a generous 
kind man he is. When there's a scene when I'm in his office mm-hmm. and I'm telling the story of this dream and it was very tiny, very tight set. And Brian said to him, you don't need to be here because it's just her talking. He was just off camera saying, mm-hmm, like that. And right. we'll get to you after we get all Nancy's side of it. And Michael said, no, 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 I'll stay. She'll feel, she'll know I'm in the room. And he just sat there on an apple box while I did the scene. A very generous man, you know. That's lovely. Yeah. Did, did you have any sense with Carrie or with Dress to Kill how huge they were going to be? Could you tell? I don't know that I knew that Carrie was going to be huge, but you could tell just from seeing the rushes, the dailies, that it was a good movie. You knew right. that. I mean, the studio certainly didn't know it was going to be a huge success. I didn't think about that. But but with Dress to Kill, again, you had a perfect script. Yeah. You know, when, when you have a perfect script, you have a pretty good chance at a good movie. Um, I wasn't surprised. For, I, I was very surprised at all the controversy when it came out. That I wasn't prepared for. You know, oh, he's a misogynist, and how could you let him treat you like that? And you know, all those kind of stuff. But it just made more uh, uh, attention for the film. But um, right. I think Brian certainly wasn't prepared for it because he was just freaked out with all the good reviews from Dress to Kill. I don't think he expected it at all. But it was thrilling. You know, it was really thrilling. And to be in your hometown, to shoot a movie in your hometown, and have it open there, it was great. Yeah. Okay. So, and then how about Blowout? Blowout, Blowout is is a film that I was never going to do. It was originally called Personal Effects. Oh. And the two characters, it was a real film noir, and the two characters were a bit older and a little more, you know, down and out. I mean, it was the, the guy was much more cerebral, more like a Jimmy Woods or a John Hurd or oh. you know, something like that. Uh-huh. And so this was a there was a list. And I was going to do, I didn't want to make another movie with Brian right away. So anyway, um, I don't know. I think I was in Europe. I was doing promotion for Dress to Kill. And I got a call from Brian and he said, you know, I ran into, John called me and asked Travolta, asked me what I was working on. And I told him and he asked if he could read the script. And I knew he wasn't on the list. And I said, well, what are you going to do if he likes it? You know, he said, oh, well, he's not going to like it. He's going to see it's not the right character for him. So sure enough, a few days later, he called me. He says, "You were right." I said, "Of course I'm right." But after play that role, you know, and he said, "I said, so now what are you going to do?" And he said, "Well, yeah. no. and so he said, "Well, uh, I asked him, you know, who he'd like to do this with, and he said, you. So what do you think about that? So do you think that's going to work?" And I said, "Are you kidding? Of course, I want to work with him again." So uh, it had to be a little retooled for us, worked out a little bit, and we did some improvisation. And, of course, once John was involved, then it became a much bigger budget and, you know, uh, that huge set piece at the end with the parade and, you know, all of that. So, uh, but it was, I was a little nervous because John had done Grease and uh, staying, uh, not staying alive, um, Saturday Night Fever at that time. So I I don't know what if, if he had changed and, you know, the first day at rehearsal, which was at our apartment, he came over and he hugged me and he right away he's like, let's order pizza. Let's eat something. <laughs> that connection that we had, that chemistry. So we did a lot of improvisation. Brian did some rewriting based on that. And um, I think it worked out really well. It's really my favorite character. Uh, and because I didn't like her and I had to find something about her to like, 
And um, the film did not open well, yet it's become this phenomenon over the years. Yes. It took a long time. The French knew it was a great film, but it took the rest of the world a long time to catch up. So I'm still, now I do a lot of interviews for that film, believe it or not. It's, it's I thought the first week it opened. I loved it immediately. So I don't know where anybody else was. Okay, so speaking about things that have taken off and gone crazy, when I mention your name, like DJ, my my ex assistant who does the banners, I watched RoboCop two days ago. <laughs> RoboCop such a phenomenon. It um, is. So how did that happen for you? Got a call, said you know we're sending over a script. They're interested in you uh, for this part. And I went okay. I'll take a look at it. So the script arrives. I look. It says RoboCop, and. <laughs> I call my agent. I said, RoboCop, they're going to change this title, right? <laughs> That's the first thing. I haven't even read a page. And I said, okay, I'll look at it. So I thought, dumb script, right? I pick it up. I start to read it. I couldn't put it down. I read it, read it in one sitting. And it was wow. just, it was a perfect script. It was smart. Mm -hmm. It was funny. It had heart. It had, it had political stuff. It was just, it was a perfect script. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I met, Paul, I found out Paul Verhoeven, who was doing, it was his first American film, and he had done a film I loved called Soldier of Orange. And I thought, oh, my God, this guy is so good. So I met him, and I had to read, had to read for it. And the writers were there, and the director, and the casting, and all of that, and um, read for it. And, in fact, Paul Verhoeven, he read with me, and there was one scene, he gave me some direction. He said, oh, will you try and do this. I, this and this. I said, okay, let me take a break. Let me walk outside and work on it and come back and read it again. So I, that's what I did. And I said, is that what you were looking for? And he said, no, not at all, but it was interesting. <laughs> so there it began. And uh, that was phenomenal. It was made on for nothing. It was a really low budget film. Wow. And, um, but you could, that set was electric. It was absolutely electric with energy. And that was him, you know, driving it, you know, really driving it. And um, those first day dailies, I looked and I thought, okay, this is going to be a great film. But I didn't think it would have wide appeal because it was so mm. odd. It was so edgy. But right. Paul brought such soul to this movie. Mm. And um, so anyway, it's, yeah, and here, here it is, you know, it's just this incredible phenomenon. So if you look back, I know Blow Out, you were saying your, your favorite character, if you look back at, at your career, it, it, was there was there, a, was there a director? I mean, it, there, you have personal experience there, but did someone stand out? As a director? Above, yes, as somebody oh, okay. who, Go ahead. So I, I have to say, okay, Brian, Steven Spielberg, Robert Zemeckis, you know, um, Paul Verhoeven. How do you pick a favorite in there? Where do you yeah. go from there? Everybody yeah. else is just, you know, that's the thing for me is that I started, I was doing work and who are these, the scripts were bad. I mean, you're just, you're, I was spoiled. I was completely spoiled. So. So why did you stop? I think it's a, a variety of reasons. Number one, I didn't really like the roles that I was getting anymore. The opportunities were not that good. I didn't, I mean, I wouldn't have, other than I needed to go to work, I wouldn't have really chosen any of that material that I was doing after that. Mm -hmm. I didn't care for the directors I was working. There was, there was just nothing. 
it wasn't pleasurable. It wasn't exciting. It wasn't challenging. It was just like, okay, it's a job. I'm going to work. And, um, but I also think that in an odd way, my life experience came into play. Um, my father died of cancer. I lost two brothers seven months apart, uh, which was, it's a whole history, 95, 94, October, 95, May. And then I had my mother with me and it just, you know, it's almost like it changes, it changes your life in ways that's hard to explain. And so it was shortly after that, a few years after that, that this thing with Wendy presented itself. And remember, as I said, I was starting to think about, I wanted to do something for women. And, um, and I think that I rolled into something that I was prepared in a way to do, which is the transition in the career. I was open to it, but I had, I, I walked around saying, well, I don't know what I'm going to be doing. I've, I've been doing this since I'm 16. I have no education. I have no skills. I have nothing. It was this mantra. It was a really bad mantra, but it was my mantra. And, you know, this incredible person said to me, you know, it's not true. Every individual has unique gifts, talents, and abilities. And you need to just thank God every day for those unique gifts, talents, and abilities and ask to be shown how to use them to fulfill your life. And I thought, all right, I can do that. And, um, and it was at that point that somehow Wendy came in with this request. And so here I am. And, you know, I was able to bring not only my own in my own things that I was interested in, integrative processes of, of medicine and metaphysical things and all of that, but also the creative environment, people from Hollywood like Wendy did, who could help, who could help fundraise, who could be part of this community. And it just, it was difficult because I had to learn mm -hmm. to ask people for things to ask because say we have no money we Is have it no worst? oh my god i do it all the time i did it with you today no. so you have these celebrity you have you have celebrity events and so yes. is it easier for you because they're going to say yes because it's you i don't know i don't think of it that way i just think it's really hard for me to do it you know i don't want to bother anyone and i i joked with a friend of mine i i feel like i said i feel like i'm on my knees either thanking somebody or begging somebody for something all the time you know nonprofit you're always asking for money it's like please please you know support us and there's so many great causes out there and uh but I'm, you know, I have to think of We Spark First, and I know, I know the value of it. So it's really easy. It's not asking for me. I know that why I'm asking, it has great value to a lot of people. So it does make it a little bit easier. I get that. I'd rather if, write the check myself if I could, but, you know. <laughs> if, 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 if the perfect script found its way to you, is it something that you would consider? Yeah, I think so. I, I've learned to never say never to anything because you don't know what's going to happen next. The minute you say never, there it is in front of you. But I think it would be, yes, if it was a role, it would, a group of people, a director or something, yes, I probably would be interested and terrified at the same time. And I know if I'm terrified, it's probably a good thing. Do you covet it at all? Do you ever sit there and do you ever watch a movie and go, oh, I could have done. I could have done that. Oh, I would have been great in that. I don't know that I do that, but I look and I go, oh, and I start to wax nostalgic and think about being on the set and all of that. And then I think, oh my God, where in the middle of nowhere in a hotel room by myself? You know, all of that. I I, right. I think that the 
the bloom is off that rose. I know it's a job, but I also know that if it's a job that you're passionate about, it's mm -hmm. not a job. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's, it's like a great experience. So I don't know. I never say never, but it's, uh, you never know what's going to happen. I don't know. Has your life gone according to a plan? Is, has it exceeded a plan? or Because it feels like you have done pretty much everything you set out to do. Well, I don't know that there was ever a major plan, per se. Mm -hmm. But when I, I look back, and now's a time in my life where I do a lot of reflective uh, thinking, it seems to me that I was led on a path. Uh, and um, all I did was say yes at times. And even when I said no, it would kept coming back to me. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. Uh, mm -hmm. And just kind of learning to trust the process. There's a feeling, there's an instinct, I think, that comes along. But I, hey, my life, my life is great. I've had a really full and rich life, uh, much more than I realized when I was young. When you're young, it's like you really, I don't know, I took everything for granted, I think, and mm -hmm. didn't really realize. I mean, here I'm in the middle of the 70s, the 70s, with, you know, a dinner with Brian De Palma, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, George Lucas, friends of Coppola. It just was normal. They were all young. We were all young. It's like, oh, it was like the, you know, and I look back and I'm going, oh my God, why wasn't I taking notes? Why wasn't I taking pictures? You know, I'm not better for a book, but it just was happening to me. And um, I'm very improvisational in that way. It's <laughs> like, oh, I'm going over here now. When is, you know, just, and I think that's the best message for anyone who's young and starting out. It's like, trust the process, go through the open door, if your head's banging into the wall over and over again, turn right or turn left, you know, and. Uh, I love that yeah. saying yes. I think saying yes is huge. Although you did say no, you, you did yes. choose, yeah. But so take risks, take risks. You know, I got on a plane to come to California with no promise of anything. I had a list of five How much money did you have? I had nothing. I had nothing. I had a little bit. After I was here for two months, I wanted to go back because I needed a paycheck. I mean, I didn't have any money, you know. I had five agents. And by the way, I have to say this. The first agent, there was only one woman. I thought, I'm calling the woman first. She'll be the nicest. I get the woman on the phone who tells me, I'm too old. You're too old. For a woman, you're too old. Go back to New York. You're not even worth the time of my investment. If you're a man, you know, like that. So take risks, you know show up, get on a plane, do whatever you want to do. If you have a dream, if you have a notion, that little whisper from the universe, pay attention and follow it. And it was kind of like with WeSpark. I thought, I'm doing this, but I have there's nothing on paper that says that I can be doing this. And But I'm doing it, you know? And I learned what I had to learn because I was passionate about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's it. Don't let Don't let your your life on paper dictate the rest of your life because, you know, things can happen that you might not be prepared for. Just go with it. Do you, uh, do you have any regrets? I don't, I don't get the feeling you believe in regret. Do you, is there anything that you regret? Um, I don't think I wouldn't say regrets. I mean, there are times of course, when I think, Oh, you know, should have, would have, could have, but I, I don't, 
No, I don't. There's every once in a while, I think, oh, I shouldn't have gone back to New York when I got married. I should have stayed out here if I had my career. But, you know, again, in hindsight, if I'm so happy, I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life right now. So if that's true, didn't everything that I did lead me up to this point? Absolutely. So what's the problem? Did you turn down any roles that you regretted afterwards that, that you then saw the movie and went, oh? Uh, no, I don't think so. No. In All fact, right. there were roles that I didn't get that I read for that I don't even know what movies those were anymore. <laughs> right, right. They seem so important at the time. So hi from Tony. Hi from uh, Catherine. Um, Catherine's here, Carlin. Um, oh. <laughs> I have a question for Nancy. Oh, what was it like working with Piper Laurie? Oh, okay. So I didn't actually get to work with her because all her scenes were with Sissy. But, wow. and in fact, I didn't even meet her until um, a few years ago when we had, oh, I think it was at a fan show. It was at the Hollywood show in Burbank. And the whole cast, it was a Carrie reunion. And Piper was sitting by herself. She'd just written her book which is, by the way, fabulous. I think it's called Learning to Live Out Loud. I don't like actors' biographies. This book is amazing. And you she's- know, I remember you were going to connect me with her when her book- oh, first I, to make, I forget things. You have to push me a little bit because I'll forget. I will. I will. I will. So, I've gotten to know Piper really well. She's an incredible woman, obviously a stunning actress. Mm -hmm. And um, my, my, one of my greatest joys was I had a Carrie fundraiser, uh, a 40th anniversary, uh, as a fundraiser for uh, WeSpark. And Piper had not, I don't think she'd seen the movie since it had opened, and never in a big audience like that. And she was sitting right behind me, and there was this huge theater at the Ace Hotel. It's a huge theater. I don't know right. how many people there, 1,500 people. And when she walks on screen and everyone cheered, she just, she just... Oh. Well, I just, I, I can't tell you, I just adore her. She's so real and so sweet and funny and charming and shy. You know, she's a bit shy and I would love to work with her. That would be really challenging myself. Wow. Is she still working? Well, she was up until a few years ago. I don't know if she still is, but she actually, she did another movie with Sissy about, I think about 10 years ago. I don't remember what it was, but she, I would be, I would be scared. She was so real. I, know. I don't know if I could get like, I think I'd be nervous around her because oh, no. I, she's so sweet. She's so sweet. But I'll tell you a funny story. She had seen Phantom of the Paradise, which I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it was really mm -hmm. satirical, you know, anyway. So she assumed that Carrie was going to have the same tone to it. So when she started rehearsing and doing her, Brian said, Piper, you know, is that, you sure that's what you want to do? Because it's, they're going to be laughing at you. And she said, well, isn't it a comedy? <laughs> <laughs> so that's actually, I think it's in her book. Wow. Too. But of course it's a stunning performance. Really oh, stunning performance. It, it's, it's immortal. I mean, it's iconic. Okay. Um, Yes. Eugene Allen says, love, love you, Nancy. My and nephew. And by the way, happy birthday. His birthday oh. is on Friday. Oh, I love you. Um, okay. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Rob. Hi, RJ. Let's see if we get a question. Um, 
Okay, let's see. I'm I'm rolling down to see. Hi, David Zimmerman. Um, I have two questions for Nancy, which I'm sure she's been asked a million times. I'm such a huge fan of her work. What was it like working? With, okay, we already did the, we already did both those questions. Okay, see, I'm I'm good. I'm already ahead of them. Um, <laughs> You're editing. <laughs> I already asked the questions that they're that they're. I'm, I'm scrolling through really fast to to see if. All right, I, I'm, I'm probably not going to do this because it's going to take too much time. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to tag you, Nancy. If anybody asked a question that that I think you, you know you can answer, you know, I'll tag you so that you can go back on the thread. And but thank you know, Nancy, there are people that that just show up and that that say yes. And today was really stressful for me. You know, Liberty had canceled on me at 3.30 yesterday afternoon at 11.30 last night. I wasn't sure if I had the replacement for him. I woke up this morning, found out I didn't. And you just, you didn't even hesitate. You just said yes. And the value of that. Because I love you. Because you're fun and fabulous and I love what you do. And why not? Yeah, but <laughs> it's not everybody feel is is that kind of person and you just are that kind of person with everything that you do and mm -hmm. i appreciate you so much and you're you exactly well, i wouldn't say yes for just anybody vicky <laughs> yes you. you know it, it's you exude light wherever you go i actually was in your company when you had covid who knew right we were at that yes. science party that's right that's I right know. i was telling you i was coughing right but i'm medicated Oh my god! <laughs> but you know, you just you just always uh, are just a beacon of light, and I'm just so grateful for you, and I'm so grateful for what you do with We Spark. It's just an inspiring and beautiful thing, and um, um, I know you your support too. I really love it. Fundraiser is going to be for We Spark. It's coming up in a few months. I'm going to kick a few people's ass to do it. Um, don't forget <laughs> you can you can support We Spark. We Spark .com. If you know anybody, no, org. Okay, sorry about that. If you know anybody okay. that is a caretaker for someone with cancer, if any, if you know of anybody, it's free services for anybody, and you can tell them that Nancy sent you. Thank you yes, so much. I love you so much. I'm so. I love you more. <laughs> and thank you all for. Um, I don't think anybody missed Liberty today. I love you, Liberty. But we'll we'll see you in two weeks, and I'll see you all tomorrow on shooting the shit. And thanks again, Nancy. Thanks, Vicki. Take care. You too.